0: Abandon all prejudices, all ye who enter here. Park your paradigms, perk up your ears, and open your mind as we now shine the laser light of reason on the topic of Fun and Games 1 How can we conquer another country without war? Hello, I'm David Bolton and welcome to my podcast channel dedicated to helping people think more clearly, make sounder judgments, and above all, to unceasingly question, instead of naively accepting what others want us to believe, for this is the path of Socrates. Well, my friends, that seems like a pretty fun game, doesn't it? How can we conquer another country without war? Now, I'm sure you'd like to know how this game goes and, and why we play it in the first place. Can't we just play... Poker or Blackjack or Solitaire or Monopoly, well, we could of course, if we were in the same room, but we're not you're out there someplace in the world, and I'm sitting here in my my little apartment in Japan, and we're going to think about something that's not only fun but that is going to be very, very instructive I mean this might really open your mind and expand your mental horizons, and now more than ever. Games like this one are necessary. Let's think about this for a minute. How can we conquer another country without war? Now, some people think that a game has to be made to be a game. That it has to be a board game or a card game, as I mentioned before. Uh, and thinking things through, especially multi-level things, well, that sounds more like work, even schoolwork. Perish the thought, who wants to do that, Right tell I can tell you i'm sometimes I have a nightmare that I'm still in college or grade school high school again, and a big test has come up, and I sit down to take the test, and I realize I haven't studied whatsoever, I have no idea what it's about in reality, that never happened to me, but you see how these how these fears from the youth can follow one throughout one's entire life, <laughs> but you know sometimes we can dig more deeply mentally, get greater mental clarity really get into things, and we do it joyfully because we can turn it into a, a game, a mental game. And that's what we're going to do right now. So once again, how can we conquer another country without war? Let's pretend, you and I, that we are leaders or among the leadership of another country. Now, you might first ask, especially if you're more of the peaceful variety, which I certainly am. On the other hand, I'm very realistic. Why would we want to conquer another country? If you I were leaders, we'd probably be good people and think, well, no, we don't want to conquer other countries. We want to live peacefully, collaborate, cooperate with other countries for the greater good. But if you think that all leaders of the world really believe that, well, maybe you should read a bit more history because if you look Throughout history, it's one big series of wars and usually a number of wars going on at the same time, even in our times. If you look just a few weeks ago, Ukraine and Russia were almost at the precipice of a war. They could have pulled in NATO and could have meant World War III. You think about that. Did you even notice it was happening? Maybe you didn't even notice it was happening, but it was happening. Uh, I'm uh, speaking in this podcast on the 14th of may 2021 and just a few weeks ago they were about to attack each other and ukraine was desperately trying to pull nato into it which would have meant the united states could have been at war with russia and that would have meant as the russians insinuated that'd be world war three because russia is a country now you know it's not the soviet union despite how many people try to paint it as such you know the mainstream media Putin, Putin, bad, bad, and uh, he's still like a communist. Well, the Soviet Union now only has 150 million people, their economy is only about the size of Italy's economy. It's not the danger that that it once was, because it's no longer the Soviet Union, it's Russia. You know, the Soviet Union broke up into many countries, and one of those is Ukraine. And, well, because of the situation in Crimea, I won't go into details there, you know, do your homework yourself, but we were possibly getting... Close to World War III uh, in April 2021, and ironically, many people weren't even aware of it because I guess there are better things to do on the internet than to see the signs that World War III is coming. I don't know, read yet another article about that greatest danger in all of history, climate change. Well, it used to be global warming, but then they changed the name because I guess things weren't getting hot enough fast enough for them, so they didn't want to be outed for maybe exaggerating so they changed the term to to climate change right as the greatest danger in in history. Uh, Let me tell you that's not the greatest danger in history Uh, but World War III that could well be and we were close to it and many people didn't even notice okay the temper of our time. So once again you you and I are leaders of a country and say a relatively big country and we want to conquer other countries. Now, why might we want to do that? As I said, why can't we just get along and cooperate? I'm that type of person. You probably are too, at your workplace or with, with other people. You know, you don't want to go around fighting with people all the time. Oh, I know there are some that do. And if you're one of those, you need to get money for it. Yeah, you actually can. You can get money these days for going out and and arguing with people, and even, even throwing stones at people, even throwing Molotov cocktails, join Antifa, and you'll see what I mean. They will actually pay you to do that if you dig more deeply into that organization. Oh, that I re- oh, that's right, it doesn't exist, it's just an idea. Didn't some dumb politician say that? Well, no, it does exist. And if you dig more deeply, you'll see there's evidence of that, and these people are paid agents. But anyway, <laughs> these days you can actually get money. Hey, you could also join uh, the mafia, and become a hitman or a woman, and, you know, get paid to kill people. You know, there's some people, <laughs> people, people are into everything, let me tell you. But if you're an average person, I think the average person is a good person. I don't care what religion you are, I don't care if, even if you're an atheist, you're probably a good person. And so you're not going around looking for fights all the time. And if you were a leader of a country, especially a big country, you don't want to be a bully and dominate the world, right? But, but you know, some of them do, and some have good reason to as well. What good reasons might they have? Well, let's pretend you and I are among the leadership of a really big country, China. And let's imagine the year is 1979, right? So, what was the state of the world in 1979? You can look it up and see what was going on. I'll mention some things. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party, Mao Zedong, the, the great leader of Chinese communism. They had taken over China in 1949, beating the nationalists under... Chiang Kai Shek, and they had, they had then well begun to dominate China, take it over for communism. And Mao then proceeded to have all these plans about how to make more factories, how to force people to work in factories, how to do this, this, and this. He had to get rid of a whole lot of people. The truth is that uh, under Mao's leadership, and that was under thirty years between 30 and 70 million people perished. Wow. That's more people than died under Hitler plus Stalin. (laughs) That's a lot of people. Of course, we in the West didn't notice it all that much, maybe because all Chinese look alike, you know, that kind of attitude. Uh, And, you know, because a lot of people, especially people to the left, they didn't want to talk about that too much. They preferred to, to keep talking about Hitler and the Holocaust, even though that was 30 years before. Meanwhile, millions of Chinese are getting killed. But... You know the way it is, like in a newspaper, we pick up a newspaper and the, and the headline would be, two Americans visiting China get killed in an earthquake, and then in small print and below it, uh, 150,000 Chinese also lose their lives. You know, you identify more with people from your country. And like I said, for many people in the West, Chinese are all kind of alike, right? But you know, for those Chinese people, they're not all alike. They're all individuals, and many, many were suffering. Anyway, we're in the Chinese leadership, say 1979. And being Chinese, we're smart. The Chinese are generally smart people. They have an advantage over some Westerners. I don't know, some say that IQ wise they do, that the average IQ in China could be higher than the average IQ in the West. I don't know. Those studies, I think, mostly were done with Asian Americans, you know, within America. So that could be different. You could say that maybe the ones that the Chinese went to America were an average more intelligent. I don't. I don't know. I'd have to look it up and study it more. In any case, the Chinese traditionally remember they had some great philosophers: Confucius, uh, Lao Tse, for example. Remember Sun Tzu, the Art of War. Do you know that book is still being studied in China? You know, every couple of years they have a big conference and they invite military people, politicians, etc., and they study yet again the Art of War, the wisdom of that book, and that was written before Christ. So they go deeply into things. Some Chinese have been great thinkers, similar to Germany in that respect. So you think, well, why did Hitler fail? And the Chinese, of course, well, they had studied that. They study Western history. They study Western wars. They study the whys and the hows and the whens and the whos. Uh, of a lot of Western history. And it seems that about 1979, they came to the conclusion, well, look at the Soviet Union, which still existed back then, right? And they continued looking at it through the 80s. The Soviet Union was going downhill financially, why? And they concluded, well, it's because of the communist economic system. Mao Zedong, on the one hand, yes, had managed to more or less feed his people. And that was almost the first in Chinese history but the economic conditions were absolutely terrible. And then looking at the United States, and many Chinese knew very well what was happening in America, prosperity, prosperity, prosperity for many decades. And America had risen to become a really major player in the world stage, which it had been before. Think of World War I, how we saved Europe from those evil Germans and Austrians. They were Nazis at that time, of course. I personally think America should even have gotten involved in that in that way. But our President Woodrow Wilson was of another opinion. So he told the American people in 1960, No, no more, we're not going to get into this war. And as soon as he won the election, he proceeded to get us into that war. You history buffs will know these facts. Anyway, the Chinese, looking at, at Hitler Germany and looking at how quickly Hitler became powerful, why? Because he had a dictatorship. No debates in parliament if you're a dictator. You say, hey, my people, this is the way it's going to go. You tell your generals you're going to do what I say or your history. And the Chinese were doing that too. Mao Zedong, absolute dictator. And after he died, well, the following leaders, they were also dictators. Chinese Communist Party was a totalitarian system and is a totalitarian system still. So they saw that. But they saw what was Hitler's big mistake? My friend, what do you think Hitler's biggest mistake was? He made a number of them. Was it that he tried to preempt his generals and he tried to take over the reins and play the greatest, the greatest general of all times, as he liked to have people call him? Was it that? Was it that he started the two-front war, you know, after he had war with uh, Britain and France? Then he turns on Stalin, with whom he had had a pact, actually, and attacks him. And so then there, there's wars on two fronts. His generals were horrified that he would do such a thing. Was it really that, his basic, greatest fault? Was it that he was so fanatical? Well, that's part of it, because the more fanatical you are, you are, the less clearly you think. The Chinese are clear thinkers. Yes, Mao was a fanatic in some way. He ended up a, a drug addict even, they say. Total hypocrite, the man too, and totally cold-blooded. But others in the Chinese leadership you know, weren't that fanatical. They were more realistic. And looking to Hitler, among the different... Uh, uh, at mistakes he made and the psychological weaknesses he had. The way I see it, one of Hitler's greatest mistakes was impatience. Why? Well, first of all, Hitler was conquering or assimilating one country after the other. It was Austria. It was part of Czechoslovakia. And Austria wanted to join the Third Reich. So there wasn't really much problem there. Sure, he, he was going against the Versailles Treaty when he took over part of the, Heinland, the Rhineland, the Rhine land there, uh, occupying it. That was against the Versailles Treaty. But the French didn't do anything because they were economically really weak then. They didn't want another World War. So Hitler was peacefully taking over areas. If he had continued doing that, I, you know, I think what he should have done—not that I'm a Hitler fan—I mean, he's one of the monsters of history. But analyzing it here, which the Chinese do as well, the Chinese are totally capable of analyzing enemy leaders, like American leaders, and very objectively saying they made a mistake there, they should have done this to win. You know, They don't just spew out hate talk. They analyze very well, very intellectually. In the case of Hitler, if he had just peacefully taken over one country and then another, and then waited a year or two or three, and then... Increases economic might, so other countries might want to join him. And then, yeah, uh, tone down that anti-Jewish thing, because that was getting more and more people in foreign countries to dislike him. He sort of taken it more easy on the Jews, so people think, well, Hitler isn't such a bad guy, why don't we join his empire too? If he had done that, I think Hitler could have won. But his fatal flaw, in my view, uh, and I don't, I don't think I've ever read this before, but it just seems to me, from reading a lot of history... It was impatience. He wanted to do things as quickly as possible. So, you know, it was the Rhineland, it was Austria, it was uh, part of Czechoslovakia, and then the next was going to be Poland. Now, you might think, if you haven't read history too deeply, you might think, well, Hitler taking over Poland, he was taking over a peaceful, democratic country. Well, no. Uh, Poland had a military dictator as well. <laughs> so it wasn't that easy. I won't go into details here. You know, look it up for yourself. On the other hand, Britain and France, seeing the growing danger of Hitler, had said, if Hitler attacks Poland, then it's going to be war. Now, it wasn't really in Hitler's interest to go to war against France and England. His greatest enemy, as he saw it, was the Soviet Union, the Bolsheviks, the communists. And you know he had a point there. (laughs) He did have a point, because communism was a a huge danger for the world. The only thing is, at that time, the greater danger was Hitler himself. But what did he do? Well, because he was impatient, he sets up a false flag event. a lot of them going on right in our times. As I speak, there might be yet another one going on. Uh, if you don't recognize that and the things have been going on for months now, the false flag attacks, uh, history will teach you, read books in a few years, and you'll see I'm right about that. But anyway, he set up this false flag attack. He made it look like Poland actually Attack germany and it was really the other way around he i uh, got some uh concentration camp prisoners i believe they were dressed them up in G- german uniforms and said you attack this this entrance into this uh, border point at poland and then of course they they got killed but the hitler said hey look they they shot an our men," you know da, 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 false flag attack and then he was attacking poland and sure enough a couple of days later france and england feel they must declare war on hitler the only thing is, Hitler had at that time 100 fieldable military divisions. A division is, uh, it could be around 10,000 men. England had only two. France, I believe, had somewhat more, but France was economically really in bad shape. But suddenly they're both at war with, with Nazi Germany that had spent years building up their military might. Hitler at that point sort of concentrated on defeating France and England, making some kind of acceptable peace with them, and then turning his sights toward. Toward uh, the Soviet Union, but instead he went all out war there. And in a way, he had to because they had declared war on him. He never should have attacked Poland at that time. He should have waited. And I'm telling you this because this is what the Chinese saw. The Chinese, you think they're not, you think the Chinese are not looking at America very, very, very carefully? Do you have any idea the intelligence services of countries to what lengths they will go to spy? Do you have any idea? I, I'll bet you don't. I'll bet you don't. I believe it was uh, when Khrushchev went to America when he spoke in the United Nations and famously banged his shoe on the podium there. Look that up too if you don't know the story. I believe it was then, you know, Khrushchev was staying in a hotel. Do you know that, in, <laughs> this gets a little gross, sorry, but the, the American intelligence services, you know, CIA, they actually, at the hotel where Khrushchev was staying, they put like a filter deep inside the pipe of the, the toilet in Khrushchev's room. Why did they do that? To capture his feces so they could analyze to see if he might have cancer or something like that. That's the extent they go. You have no idea what these intelligence services do to find yet another little piece of information on the enemy. An American president gets a cold and immediately the intelligence services back then, for example, in well, now too, Soviet Union, China, Put. But back then, especially Soviet Union, they were analyzing everything. What kind of cold is it? What are the symptoms? Because maybe it's a sign of this disease. Maybe it's seasonal flu. Maybe it's something worse. In our day, what do you think, say the Russian, not Soviet Union, where they're not communists anymore, Vladimir Putin, you don't hear this on CNN mainstream media too much. He's a practicing Christian. He's an Orthodox Christian. He has financed the rebuilding of thousands of churches throughout Russia, Churches that were destroyed or turned into schools or whatever by, uh, by the leaders of the Soviet Union who were communist, materialist, atheists, right? Vladimir Putin is not what the mainstream media has been telling us for years. Look it up. Read that wonderful book by Oliver Stone who went to Russia and had a series of interviews with Putin. Putin's a very reasonable man, actually. But to look at mainstream media think, oh, he's a devil and he's diabolical, etc., and he, he wants to attack America. Uh, no, he doesn't want to attack America. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, you'll be surprised at things that come out in the next months and years. <laughs> you'll be, if you think that he's one of the great devils, the greatest threat to America, you'll be really surprised. And then you can call me a prophet or a psychic or just a very good analyst. But you'll see what I mean there. Nonetheless, the Russian intelligence services, it's not KGB anymore, it's FSB, they're very good analysts, too. And with this Biden situation, you better believe they don't just see the they, they look at everything he says and how he says it. And if he made another gaffe, if he forgot another name of somebody in his own cabinet or whatever, uh, they see what's happening with this guy. They see many things. They see the fact that for the first two months in his presidency, you know, the lights in the White House went off every night. I mean, all the lights in the White House at 11 p.m., not just that President Biden was going to bed at 11 and so the light in his room was off. No, all the lights in the White House. That's never happened in history. In fact, it really can't happen under normal circumstances because in the White House, you always have secret Service men walking around, right? And you don't want them walking around in the dark. So why was that happening? And then after two months, they started go- keep staying on at 11. It's almost as if somebody wanted to give us a sign that that, that the president... President Biden is not in the White House. Somebody wanted to give us a sign, but when more and more people saw it was, and they were questioning what's going on here, then they thought, uh-oh, we better leave the lights on at night in, in, in the White House. Really interesting signs if you're a good analyst. Maybe, maybe I should be working for the CIA or the FSB because I'm, I look for these little signs and I put the pieces together. Most people, though, are content to look at their objective news sources, you know, like CNN and New York Times, whatever they put there, they'll believe it because why shouldn't you trust them? Why, news services wouldn't lie to us, would they now? I used to be a CNN fan decades ago and I was shocked to see what they've turned into in the past years. But, you know, you can opine whatever you want on that. Uh, You will see. (laughs) You will see. There'll no doubt be some book of the future just on that, CNN, and what happened over the years. Uh, In... In a few years, there are going to be hundreds if not thousands of books on the market about everything that's happening in the past year and a half. Once again, you can send me, a, send me an email in, in five years and say, David, you must be a psychic. You know, I might have some psychic ability, but this has nothing to do with it. I'm just a keen observer. But let's get back to our game. This is all part of it anyway, the things I'm talking about. How can we conquer another country without war? Okay, we're leaders of communist China and we're back in 1979, 1980, we see, okay, realistically speaking, we have one good thing here in our country, China, and one bad thing. Well, we have a number of good things. We have a relatively intelligent people. We have all of them under control because we're a total totalitarian dictatorship. Our party rules, right? So we don't have to waste years debating things in some parliament or congress. No, no. What we say is the law, so we can get things done quickly. But look, my friends, we've existed, 1979, for 30 years as the great communist China, right? And yet still, the country's poor. And we see what's happening gradually Soviet Union. They're running out of money. America's getting stronger and stronger throughout the 80s under that darn dragon. Wow, America's increasing its military power. And Russia, was inv- Soviet Union, was involved in that, that Vietnam-like conflict in Afghanistan that they were losing, <laughs> and money's going down the drain, and Reagan's pumping more money into the, uh, into the military in America, and the Soviet Union's just going to, going to implode. Now, we as Chinese leaders that are very good observers, and we have the strength that Hitler didn't have, we have patience. We have the patience of Job, to put it in Western biblical terms. We can be patient. That means we don't just have five-year plans as Stalin did. We can have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100-year plans. Sure, we know that we, you and I, two of the leaders, aren't going to live forever. We know that. But after all, it's about the cause. We want to go down history as having worked towards the communist cause. What is the communist cause? Is it to get along with other countries and help establish a world of peace and prosperity? If you think that, my friends, you have not read a single book about the history of communism please do so. Because from the very beginning, starting with Karl Marx, communism is about not peace and harmony. It's about conflict at every level. Conflict, conflict, conflict. They conquer through conflict. They preach conflict. You know, exploitation of masses, the rich against the poor, that all of history can be interpreted in economic terms. It's the The exploiting class and the exploited class. It's about conflict, conflict, conflict. So we don't believe in peace and harmony. We believe in disseminating more and more conflict. Now, of course, in our country, it's different. In our country, communist China, right? Do we want conflict? Well, we want to preach conflict as far as the world's concerned but we want to dominate everything. So if we encounter conflict in our country, we're not going to foment it. We're not going to say, yeah, create some more conflict. You know, no, anybody creates conflict with us in their history. We're going to shoot them. Uh, we're going to kill them in some way or another. We're going to put them in, in labor camps, concentration camps. And you know, some of our worst enemies, as the decades went on and by the 1990s, boy, they had a group that was really becoming dangerous to them. I mean, this group was becoming existentially dangerous to the, the Chinese communists. Can you guess what it was? Was it some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, military fanatical group you know, that hid out in the hills and were starting guerrilla warfare against the government? No, it wasn't a group like that. What was it? Well, it was a group that preached a horror of horrors. You and I, now we're playing a game, remember? So we're pretending we're communist Chinese leaders. Horror of horrors. Because this group that was growing in number, they had millions and millions and tens of millions, some say maybe 100 million, 200 million followers. This group preached something that's more horrible for us, for you and me, that is Chinese communist leaders, more horrible than anything you can imagine. Guess what this group preached? This group preached peace. Oh, I'm, I'm trembling. I'm the Chinese communist leader, remember? I'm tre- they, teached, they taught peace. And they taught love. And they taught harmony. And they weren't a political group at all. What would these people do? Well, they weren't dissidents hiding out. Excuse me, somebody's ringing my doorbell here in Japan. Let's see what this is all about. I'll put on pause and continue with you in a second. It was a package being delivered. So now we continue. So this group I was saying, they they taught peace and love and harmony and they They weren't fighting at all. They had no fighting spirit. They would spend their days doing Tai Chi, that graceful sort of slow martial art. And they'd be out in parks, peacefully meditating. And If you're playing this game well, my friends, I hope you're trembling. I hope you're shaking like a chihuahua, because this scares us. We're Chinese communist leaders. The last thing we want is a growing and ever-growing movement in our country of tens of millions of people that are preaching peace and love and harmony, I mean, let's face it, this is dangerous for us. Because if the whole country is converted to these positive ideas, we are history. Because sooner or later, they're going to get political power. You know, when maybe 90% of the people belong to this movement, and this movement is called Falun Gong, look it up. When the overwhelming majority belong to this movement, how are they going to accept us throwing people into concentration camps, having people shot? They're not going to do it. We're going to be Maybe not totally brutalized, but just because of their sheer numbers, we'll be (laughs) at least gently nudged out of power, and that's the last thing we want. And most likely, it's not going to be too gentle, because some people will use that group to, yeah, try to get political power through force of arms, and we're going to lose. We can't have this. We're We're right in the middle of this game. We can't have this. We have to suppress that group, don't we now? Well, anyway, that was on the not-too-distant event horizon of Chinese communists. We were back in the 80s now, and, uh, let's see, early 80s. And back then, they decided, okay, we have to somehow change our course. Communism has, well, really, three different columns, I guess you'd say, old-fashioned communism. First of all, it was the political... Well, the most known column was economic communism. You know something about that. The second was the totalitarian system that was necessary to institute economic communism because most people don't want economic communism. Yeah, oh yeah, it creates equality and everybody's equally poor. Except, of course, the leadership. And they're the ones that, you know, they have all these special rights and money hidden away. Uh, You know, some of them were millionaires or billionaires, somebody like Mao Zedong in secret, right? Had money all over the world. But, you know, officially, you know, well, he had, as a matter of fact, different palaces and things within China. uh, And anybody that knew about it didn't dare talk about it because they were history if they did. But anyway, economic communism, that was one of the pillars of traditional communism. The second was the totalitarian dictatorship necessary to force people into the economic communism. The third was what you call scientific communism. That is the idea that conflict is everywhere in nature. In other words, in order to brainwash the people and get them on this track of, of economic communism, you know, the exploiting people against the exploited people, conflict, 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 you bring that down to science as well, that they're even saying things like, within the atom itself, because it has a pos- positive and negative uh, forces, there's conflict even within the atom. Now, of course, in reality, if that were totally true, then, then why does the atom even exist? You'd think it would just break apart from the very beginning we wouldn't even have a universe. And so they kind of toned that rhetoric down because it was nonsense. But they were teaching, even in all of nature, it's conflict, conflict, conflict. Well, that petered out that, because <laughs> that didn't really hold water, just as the economic system later petered out because it never works, right? But the totalitarianism, oh, that's something you don't want to give up. Because if you're a, a dictator or a group of dictators, totalitarian system, and later other people, peaceful people or democracies. Imagine a democracy starting in in mainland China. What's going to happen to those Chinese leaders responsible for throwing people into concentration camps, murdering people, organ harvesting? Please, please, please listen to my podcast on the organ harvesting in China. It's not some weird conspiracy theory. Serious investigators have been uh, revealing these facts for over for about twenty years now. There's there are mounds of evidence. The Chinese, with the dissidents, with the people that are like the Falun Gong people, they started with them. Uh, now with some Uyghurs, no doubt some Christians as well. They throw in a concentration camp. They take blood tests to see if you're a good uh, match for some other people to be an organ donor. And then then when they have some. A Westerner going there that needs a kidney or whatever they will murder you to take your organs they harvest your organs your kidneys your organs. No, no this is not some kind of or, old horror movie Boris Karloff <laughs> starring Boris Karloff no no this is reality it is still going on in China you should know about this you should spread this information I know it's beyond belief listen to the podcast watch the video that I, I put up there uh, and and I've seen everything in that video from other sources as well. It's not some kind of anti-China propaganda video. Look into this. But now, suppose China got democracy. What would happen to the leaders that sanctioned such practices? What do you think would happen to them? Well, I can tell you. Mass trials. Mass execution. So in other words, if you and I, because we're it's a game here, right? That's what will keep you listening because it's fun and games, right? Sometimes you learn to think very deeply by making it a game. The best Students in school are the ones that love learning, right? It's for them like a game, and they're always the best. The ones that don't like learning, they're usually the worst. So let, that's why we turn this into a game, right? So here we are, leaders of Communist China, and we know the last thing we want in the world is democ- democracy, because then we're history. So we have to keep up our totalitarian system. Pretty clear, right? Right? So now, what do we do? Well, there's a big problem in the world. And it's not global warming. It's not that, no, no. It's not even threat of nuclear war. That's really not the biggest problem for us. The biggest threat is democracy. Because we look out over the world and our analysts, they know every country in the world. They know the tendencies of every country in the world. Remember, we're Chinese. Traditional Chinese philosophy, basic things like the yin and yang, there's a lot of wisdom there. A lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom. And the ancient Chinese even knew, and the modern Chinese all the more, there is one, paradoxically, one constant in the universe, and that constant is change. That's the one thing you can be sure of in your life, my friends, change. And they know that. So they look out over the world. They know, well, we still have a totalitarian system. Getting in the 90s, oh, look, our neighbor, the Soviet Union, that was also a totalitarian system, that has fallen, and now they're introducing democracy. And no doubt, at least in part, the CIA is behind that. And they were involved in that with with Yeltsin. No doubt whatsoever. Because, of course, in in America, our interest was expanding democracy. And we see finally, in part thanks to the efforts of Ronald Reagan, communism falls in the Soviet Union. That was a big thing. That was really a big thing. And somebody who doesn't give Reagan any credit for that is not being objective. He wasn't the only reason for that. Of course not. But he certainly worked towards that end, and he succeeded. But okay, as Chinese once again, Soviet Union has fallen, and they're going to get some other system, and either some kind of dictatorship, if things get really chaotic, but it's not going to be a communist dictatorship, and that's a problem for us as communist Chinese, or a democracy, and that's a problem too. Now, not that Chinese and Russians were really, you know, bosom buddies in that sense. They had their conflicts too. But let's face it, if you're a communist country, you better have another communist country next to you, rather a democratic country. So in other words, the former Soviet Union starts breaking up and you have all these other little countries and they're turning into democracies. Wow, for the Chinese leadership, it was time to get scared. Because as I said, if this cancer of democracy takes over China, you and I, my friends, you who are here on the the game board, in our little game of let's play Chinese leaders, we are history. Can you imagine the trials they're going to have? Can you imagine they might even torture us and everything, get word from, and then they're going to kill us, they're going to execute us. Even if in their system, then they don't have the death penalty, we're going to get it because we're going to be considered just, just huge criminals, which <laughs> between you and me, we are, right? Because we're communist Chinese leaders. So what, what, what do we have to think then? We have to think, okay, one of the constants of the universe is change, and it sure looks like the world is going towards more and more democracy. Hey, look, it used to be that, that Hitler was in Germany and Franco was in Spain and Mussolini was in Italy. You know, uh, either they had dictators in different, Ceausescu in Romania, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are many dictators. And some were communist dictators. Well, okay, Tito in Yugoslavia. Uh, but others were fascist dictators, but you know, at least they were dictators. But this democracy, that's the most dangerous thing for us as Chinese leaders. So what the devil do we do? Oh, I'm sorry, comrade, I shouldn't say what the devil, because you and I are atheists, we don't believe in God or the devil, but it's just a figure of speech, right? So what do we do? We know, because we see the trends, we see the writing on the wall, (laughs) democracy, 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 the world is going in direction of democracy, and that's the last thing we want. We don't want this democracy that for us is like a cancer because, hey, we have law and order. Hey, look at America. Look at all the crime in American cities. I mean, when I was a child back in the 60s, I lamented the fact that in Baltimore, in the neighborhood where I lived, there was so much crime, shootings at night. And now it's even, if anything, even worse than it was back then. But no, in China, if too much crime, you send in, if necessary, the military. Hey, remember back then, a few decades ago, uh, Tiananmen Square? I mean, the CIA was helping finance a democracy movement within China, and you had all these student dissidents in the street, and they were protesting. They wanted more rights. They wanted more of this, and then they had this big gathering in Tiananmen Square, right? Right in the in our capital, and they were there were so many, there were thousands of them, thousands of them. What do we do? If we don't do anything, this movement's going to spread throughout all of China like a wildfire, like a like a especially rabid cancer. And before long, we're going to be on trial for our lives. You and I and all our friends and cronies in the Chinese Communist Party, we can't let this happen. So what do we do? Well, now let's step out of the game a step. And I'll tell you, at the time when that happened, Tiananmen Square, maybe you remember, I'll remind you if you don't remember. At the time that happened, and everybody was criticizing China because of, of what they actually did in reaction to Tiananmen Square. And I'm going to I'm going to look it up. I don't remember the exact date of when it happened in Tiananmen Square. Uh, let's see what was the exact day? Oh, April yeah, 1989, I remember that, but uh it went on for a while, really, from April to June. So, 32 years ago, right? And what they did was something that I said at the time was, believe it or not, because I'm not a communist, listen to my other podcast, I'm, I was never a communist, but I said they really did the most logical thing, and in a sense they did the most right thing. What did they do? Well, they got fed up with it, and so they sent in uh, troops with, with tanks, with, with uh, machine guns, etc., etc., and they started mowing people down. And they killed, uh, the exact figure I don't know, I don't know if anybody knows, I think it was about 2,000 people. Uh, Let's see here, I'll I'll look it up. Well, you can look it up for yourself, Tiananmen Square, the exact figure doesn't even matter now. But they killed a lot of people. Uh, And in, in different parts there, not just in the square. In other words, they went in by force of arms, and they started killing people. And that was that with that revolution. Now, why did I say at the time that it was the right thing to do? I mean, it was a horrible thing to do. I didn't say ethically it was a nice and pretty thing to do. Of course it wasn't. In one sense, it was ethically a terrible thing to do. On the other hand, if they had not done that, this democracy movement would have spread more and more throughout China, and China would have headed towards civil war. And a civil war in China would mean millions and millions and millions of people killed. And by killing a few thousand, they stopped this democracy movement and they impose law and order again. You know, I thought of Tiananmen Square back almost a year ago with the riots in American cities. Remember that four months of riots every single night? And yet some people were killed, especially people were killed because they were in the defunding the police and pulling back the police. So in the bad neighborhoods there, there, there's more and more crime. And in some cities, murders went up by 50%. So as an indirect result of that, there were hundreds of people more uh, that were killed in America and still are because of defunding police and everything. The crime figures have gone up. And every excess death in the cities, the people who are at fault are the people that were for defunding the police, for pulling back the police, for not strengthening police in times of conflict. Imagine the poor people that live in the inner cities that are good people, because most people that are good, I used to live in an inner city in Baltimore and imagine how much more they have to live in fear because the police presence has been reduced. Imagine that. It's a terrible crime. What I said when the riots first broke out, when they're starting to throw Molotov cocktails, if I had been a police chief and a mayor, I would have had snipers on the roofs and I would have announced with loudspeaker, anybody who hurls a potentially deadly weapon, which includes Molotov cocktails, bricks, stones, water bottles that are frozen, they will be shot immediately. You have snipers and spotters on the roofs. And they say, hey, look, there's one about to throw a Molotov cocktail. They shoot him down. If that had happened, the others would have stopped doing it. Believe me, they would have stopped doing it. And the cities would have been controlled again. But of course, that would hardly have been a very woke thing to do now. You start shooting people. The Chinese, once again, I will say here, I hate to use the word wisdom because these are criminal Chinese communists. But in that sense, yes, uh, call it realpolitik. The German term meaning you know practical politics. You don't want civil war because it means millions of deaths. So you kill a couple of thousand to save millions. That's basically what they did. Of course, and we in the West demonized them totally. Look at the terrible human rights violation. They killed a couple of thousand people. They just shot them down. How terrible. Uh, yes, it was terrible. <laughs> of course it was terrible. But a lot of that was Western propaganda because we were in an ideological war with China. The truth is That's the best thing. In our cities, it would have been best. We wouldn't have had to kill thousands. In our cities, we would have had to kill the first person to throw a Molotov cocktail or a stone, maybe first, second, or third. At the most, we shoot three, and the others break up and and run away. And that would have been that. It's really as easy as that, and we could have avoided so many more deaths because of it, but we don't have the wisdom of the Chinese. Uh, Thanks to the Chinese, in part, we don't have the wisdom of the Chinese. I'll get into that later. I'm thinking of turning this into a two-part presentation because I've already gone 43 minutes. This is the preparation phase. This is to get you to think about what you would do. Remember, we're on the game board here and we're Chinese communist leaders. So we, in 1989, we've been all for shooting some people, even if it's a few thousand, because we don't want a big democratic movement to break out all over the country. And there are all the signs that it was happening. So if that happens, First of all, it's going to be civil war anyway. Even if we think, well, we don't care if we die, but no, it's going to be the hardline communists against the the masses that want to be free in democracy. It's going to be some kind of civil war. And once the de- democratic forces win, and they probably will because it will be backed by, by the CIA, by the United States, by many other democracies, uh, then it's going to be civil war because the communists aren't going to go off like you know lambs to the slaughter, <laughs> as some Westerners tend to do. Uh, They're not going to say, oh, okay, we're going to put us on trial. And Well, okay, we'll just put up with... No, they're not going to do that. They're going to fight. They're going to fight. Especially because they're atheists, right? Because for an atheist, once you're dead, you're dead. There's nothing. So you want to live as long as possible. So you have to fight to the death. And so that movement that we know about because of the events in Tiananmen Square, uh, that would have meant our death if if we're Chinese communists. And especially if we're leaders in the party, my God, our future be dim. So we have to suppress it We kill a few thousand people, then we get things under control, and we're back to the good old totalitarian dictatorship, stronger than ever. That's what we do, right? You see the the logic in that, right? Uh, And like I said, the Chinese communists, they love to preach conflict in other countries, but they don't want in their country, if if it rears its ugly head, that head's going to be chopped off as quickly as possible. Look at Hong Kong. Well, we get Hong Kong back from the British, which I think was which was ethical treason on part of Great Britain against Hong Kong, if China had been a small country, the British would have said, okay, Hong Kong, you belong to, you have had a free little state there for a hundred years. Well, well, of course dominated by Britain, but that was pretty free. And so we're going to let you vote, whether you want to become part of communist China or not, part of mainland China. And let me tell you, they would have voted for it, to have an independent state. But Britain didn't let them have an election. Why? Because they're afraid of China, uh, Chinese, well, communist China. You don't want to get that huge dragon mad, do you now? So you say, oh no, you can't have a vote. No, you're just going to be... It was, the, it was the treaty we had 1899, I believe it was, with China. Yeah, but that was before it was communist China. Oh, that's one thing. But when it's communist China, that's a whole different story. But Britain basically betrayed Hong Kong, in my view, there. They, ne- they should have had, let him have a vote, let him become independent. Of course, Chinese communists might have reacted by just taking them over militarily. And then what do you do? World War Three or what? Oh, so, the, so the Brits were thinking, well, we'll have to sacrifice Hong Kong, but we don't want a world war. But what these people like in England and many in America fail to see is that we're dealing with communists here. And communists always preach revolution in other places. Because their goal is world domination. And let me tell you, now that we're playing the game, now that you have a bit of a mentality of the, of the of communists here in China, we don't just preach world domination for the hell of it or because Karl Marx talked about that. We preach it because it's existentially important for us. Because once again, if this cancer of democracy spreads through the world, we're history. They're going to take us down, and we can't have that. And being wise Chinese, we know there's one, paradoxically, one constant of the universe, it is change. So in other words, either things go in our direction and we have more totalitarianism, communist totalitarianism, or it goes in the other direction, there's more democracy. Because there's a conflict between democracy and, and, and communist totalitarianism, right? It's freedom against slavery, and if the if the forces of slavery are not winning then the forces of freedom are going to be winning and we can't let that happen because we are chinese communists are you in the game are you playing the game are you using your imagination here you wouldn't believe the things that you could discover simply by using your imagination and putting yourself in the place of others put yourself in the place of the enemy you know this is what a good detective does Sherlock Holmes, I've never read a book, but I've seen a whole bunch of movies, like many people. I don't read much fiction, I read more nonfiction, history, psychology, uh, sociology, philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look, think of the Sherlock Holmes stories, you know Sherlock had his weaknesses. He was an opium addict in the, in the modern series, uh, what was that called? Uh, was that called? No, that wasn't Sherlock, it was the one with, <laughs> where, where Watson was a woman, a Chinese woman, right? But what was the name of... I forget the name of the series now, although I watched it. It slips my mind at the moment. Uh, Anyway, uh, he was a drug addict there. And he was a drug addict in the original. I think he was addicted to opium. So Sherlock had his weaknesses. But you know, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, that was a wise move because drug addicts usually have a lot of imagination. Sherlock Holmes wasn't just the analyst, the logical thinking analyst. Of course, he was brilliant with that, much better than I would ever be. But he also had this great imagination that was furthered by his drug use. Ah, you see, in other words, for Sherlock Holmes, it's not just about analyzing. Look at that. There's a speck of dust in that pool of blood. Well, that means this or this, you know, things that nobody would connect in any way. In other words, the very astute, very clear-eyed and fine-eyed analyst of any piece of evidence there and putting the pieces together like a mathematical genius would, like a great chess champion would, right? Uh, It's not just that. And this isn't talked about as much, No. It was his great imagination. So seeing all these little pieces, he could then imagine, okay, what is my enemy really like, the criminal? What is he really like? Not just adding up the pieces, but using his imagination that was maybe made more potent by his drug use. And this is the game we're gonna start playing. No, don't, don't reach for the needle. I've never used any illegal drug in my life. Not just because it's illegal, but because I don't want to weaken my system. I'm just not into drugs. I never smoked a cigarette in my life either. I'm uh, just not into that stuff. So please don't think, hey, I'm going to get some good imagination here to play this game with David. I'm going to take some more drugs. No, don't think that way. Because you don't need it. I have a great imagination. I don't need drugs for that. And I don't think you do either. If you learn to use your imagination in a constructive way, in a way that will, that will make you even more a little more intelligent and definitely wiser, so put yourself in the brain of your enemy. We're Chinese communist leaders. We see, especially after 1990, in the fall of uh, the Soviet Union and democracy in Russia. So we think, "Whoa. First of all, what we need, what do we need, first of all? And remember, we're long-term thinkers. We know for a fact the tendency of the world more and more democracy that means sooner or later they're going to beat us because we're going to be surrounded by japan's a democracy right russia's turned into democracy india whose population is quickly catching up to our own i mean now china has about 1.4 billion people and india has over a million people Uh, excuse me over a billion people right in India, the, the birth rate is higher than in China, so sooner or later, India's going to have more people we do, and that's a nuclear power, too. We're going to be surrounded by these democracies. And then what? Then we're going to fall. We Chinese communist leaders, either we or our children, that might also be Chinese communist leaders, probably also in the party, they're going to all be executed. We can't let this happen. The only way this doesn't happen, you can think, well, could we could we reach for maybe a world that's half communist, half, half democracy? No, that's not going to work, because a law of nature, it's change. So I will give you this hint here. The world in the future, in our minds, you know what's your conclusion? What do we have to work towards? The the trend is more and more democracy, and that's bad for us. You I hope you've realized that by now, playing the part of a Chinese communist leader. I hope you realize that. That the trend is towards democracy. I mean that's obvious. Look at all these power look at all these nuclear countries alone. have democracy. United States and Great Britain and France and India. Israel secretly has nuclear weapons as well. I mean, if it's a nuclear war, we the Chinese, despite our numbers of people, we can't beat them. Because one way, of course, imagine if there were so many communist countries, only a few democratic countries. They wouldn't exist for long. Because what would we do as, as communist leaders? say? Okay, let's attack these countries, then we have the whole world. I mean, that should be pretty obvious, right? Imagine if already almost all the countries were communist. And the only countries that weren't were, say, I don't know, Spain, Italy, and France. Well, you know, we just attack them. We threaten them first. We say, look, either you give in and become communist or we're going to attack you and wipe you out. And we'll kill all your people because we have so many people we can repopulate in no time. But no, it's going in the other way. There's so many democracies. So how do we... You know, we have our people enslaved. You know, in China, you jaywalk and the camera's going to pick you up and they, you get negative points. The more negative points you get, you know, you don't have these systems. Oh, this is a, almost a disease in Japan. You go into a store to buy something. Say, do you have a card? You have these cards with uh, point cards, they call them, right? Pointo kado <laughs> point kado point cards. And I say, you say, no, I don't have a card. I don't even know what it is. Uh, you buy stuff and then you get some points. You buy food for $30, and you get a few points, and those points add up, and you can buy stuff at the point. What's well, a nice system. But in China, they have those points in the civic sense. You jaywalk, and you, and you get negative points. You speed, and you get negative points. And then you start losing your rights. They say you get so many negative points. Well, it's, Germany had a point system, and I guess they still do, based in Flensburg, north of Germany, uh, connected driving system. If you speed the number of times, well, I don't know, once, twice, whatever, you commit traffic infractions, you know, speeding, false parking, I mean, uh, what, illegal parking, whatever, and you get negative points. You get a certain number of negative points, and you lose your license, maybe just for a year, maybe for, maybe for your life, depending. I don't remember how this system worked. Well, in China, they've introduced that. Maybe they learned it from Germany, I don't know, but in a general sense. So you jaywalk, and they can trace you, because of the cell phone technology, right? They know who it was that jaywalked. They get you in camera if you would you know, dare to say, hey, that wasn't me. I'm going to get a lawyer. But they say, no, it was you. Here you are. And you get maybe, I don't know, maybe more negative points just because you challenged the system, right? And then they say, well, okay, you can only buy up to this point or you can't buy this or you can't do this or you, you can't do that. And they're cha- changing, turning the whole society in that kind of system. So you're punished for anything you do that they don't want you to do. Look into that, too. Do your homework, Uh, because that's well underway in China, right? Not that they do such a thing in the West. We'll talk about that later, but uh, the signs are there, my friends. Uh, But here we are, you and I on this great chessboard that is world politics, and we're leaders of communist China. We're a great country. We have 1.4 billion people. Do you know the year 1800, only 221 years ago, there were approximately only 1 billion people in the world. We have 1.4 billion, we as Chinese communist leaders. 1.4 billion people, more than the entire world population just 220 years ago. Think about that. Hey, that's a plus point. That's good for us, right? What else do we have? As far as numbers are concerned, we can put together the greatest military in the world, number-wise, right? Because we have 1.4 billion people. Theoretically, we have an army of uh, 200 million people. (laughs) Beat that U.S., right? In America, they don't even have the draft anymore. You introduce a draft, you say, hey, we don't want, it. We don't want, to, be, we want to be drafted. Right? We're not used to that anymore. The Chinese, well, they wouldn't dare say that. And they don't have an army of 200 million, but they could put it together. It's a nuclear power, China. No, they don't have as many nukes as Russia does, nor as the United States does, of course. But how many nuclear weapons do you need to destroy an enemy? Well, okay, they would destroy us too. We don't want to go the nuclear route because they're stronger than we are. In other words, if we, Chinese communist leaders, if we dominated ninety percent of the world, the the other ten percent isn't important. We can we can just send an army in there and take them over. But we can't do that so easily with America or with Europe, right? Or with India or these other countries. We do with India, then America gets involved, you know, whatever. We can't do that. But on the other hand we know, and this is the great problem we have my friends, my communist friends, because <laughs> we're playing this game, remember. This is the problem we have. We know we can't just go on like this because democracy is winning in the world. Well, at least it was up to not too long ago. We'll talk about that in part two. But we know democracy's on the march. It's winning. It's spreading all over the world, like a cancer from our point of view. And sooner or later, we're going to lose. Certainly, the democratic movements within China could to be too strong, and we're going to be facing Nuremberg-type trials that are going to put us on, on trial for crimes against humanity and they're going to execute us. And we don't want that because we're atheists. I mean, with Christians, they could fight to the death thinking, OK, or Muslims, for example, we're going to fight to the death for our good cause, and even if we die, we're going to be in heaven. But hey, we're communists, we can't we don't believe that. We believe once we're dead, we're dead. So that's no comfort. And so the last thing we want is to get killed. You understand the psychology here, right? So we have to do everything to turn the tide. Democracy is winning. Democracy here, democracy there. And even if they're corrupt democracies, they're not not systems that are being controlled by us, by communists. So they're potential enemies. And this cancer, once again, of democracy is going to penetrate our borders too. There are already some signs of it that we suppress immediately, of course. Japan, that's a democracy, and that's just off our coast, and they have a lot of money. Not, not a strong military, but if Japan wants to have nuclear weapons, I don't think it's going to take them too long. <laughs> America could, could give them some. Then we have that fly in the soup that really bothers us, namely Taiwan. You know, And they're the, China- <laughs> for America, they're the good Chinese, they're the non-communist Chinese. And the United States sent them under that damn Trump. They, they so- sold him that uh, missile defense system for two and a half billion dollars. So if we communist Chinese want to just bomb them into oblivion, they have that high high tech defenses, and we we boy we were really mad when that happened, weren't we? If you, other player on the board, who's playing this game, if you know about that deal, look it up. So. Look, we're getting surrounded by power. And the Vietnamese, okay, they're communists too. And we work together with them. We don't want to lose them. But traditionally, the Vietnamese were never our great friends. If you look back in history, the Vietnamese were always afraid of China. So we can't count on them totally, right? If the U.S. gives them a bribe big enough, then they could turn against communism as well. You don't know what might happen there. So we're on a bad path if we're Chinese communist leaders around 1990 that is we we've, we've gotten on a good path because we've gone we've moved made significant moves towards towards what towards a non-communist economic system okay that was a wise move wasn't it how we did that because we saw if we just have a, a an economic system that's communist not just the dictatorship part but the economic system is communist if we have that oh my god we're going to end up totally poor and they're just going to bankrupt us and that's how to bring down our, our system. But we're cleverer than, we're cleverer than the Soviets. We're clever than that. We're going to change our economic system, which we're doing through the 80s, moving towards capitalism. Because capitalism creates money. And yes, you can have a dictatorship with capitalism. Look at Hitler. Oh, Hitler was smart, wasn't he? We say when we study him in our Chinese communist history classes. <laughs> yeah, he had the total dictatorship. But he had more or less a capitalistic system. Money was being generated. Money, money, money. So then he could have an even bigger military. He could be doing all kinds of experiments with this type of weapon, that type of weapon, looking for his Wunderwaffe, you know, the the miracle weapon. They had a whole lot of money. But communist systems don't generate money. They don't generate prosperity. Not for the people and ultimately not for the governments. They don't do that. So we as wise Chinese leaders through the 80s have been moving, taking the first steps towards capitalism. Not that it was easy because there are always some dumb old timers that are dyed in the wool communists. What are you doing? But the great Mao, he wanted a, a communist system and you're a betrayer. Well, you, you kind of get rid of those people or you silence them some way or another. Because if you're a wise communist leader, you know the communist economic system is not going to win world domination. It's just not going to work. You know, you, You've learned that lesson. So you start moving towards capitalism. So now let's pretend we're around 1990. And yes, we've made significant strides towards, uh, towards capitalism. We're still economically only maybe, depending on the year, maybe only number 11 or 12, our GDP. right? So we're still not in even in the top five. But we make plans how to get there. And we make plans how we can beat other countries. I'm going to leave you with a question for part two of this game. The question is, if you are outnumbered, that is the other countries, even though we have 1.5 billion, they have altogether, uh, altogether more people, but it's not just that, they have so many more nuclear weapons, the militaries are more, they have more technology, they could beat us in a war, in a hot war. So how do we ultimately beat these other countries? And most especially, how do we beat the United States? I say most especially, because if, if we could wave our magic wand, communists don't believe in magic, I do in a way, <laughs> but not the way you might think. If we could wave our magic communist wand and change just the United States into a communist dictatorship, friends of ours, or maybe puppets of ours, all the other countries, all their democracies are going to fall. Because what are France and England going to do against the United States and China combined? They're going to fall. Germany? That's a joke. They don't have a military like they used to. They're going to fall. Italy, Spain, all of Europe's going to fall. And once all of Europe falls, you think it's going to be a problem those little pseudo-democracies in Africa or South America? Do you know how quickly they're going to fall? I mean, dominoes. But a quick domino game, one after the other after the other. No, we have to defeat the United States. But we can't do it militarily. Going back 30 years. Even today. So what do we do 30 years ago? Thinking like wise Chinese, long-term goals. We know sooner or later we can't let democracy beat us. We know about this universal law of change. Either it's going to be go direction more and more and more democracy. Well, they could turn into to dictatorships, but then they could be anti-communist dictatorships like you know Hitler and Stalin. We don't want that either. No, we want our system to 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 even thrive and prosper but we wanted to dominate in any case and we know the big enemy is the United States but we can't beat them militarily so now final question how do we Chinese communists beat the United States with a long year plan we know we can't do it in a year or two but we're Chinese communists we're capable of not just having 5 year plans like Stalin. we can have 10 year plans 20, we can have 50, 100 year plans so how do we do it what kind of plan do we set up If we're thinking 30 years ago, based on, because we have other weapons in our arsenal, based on all the knowledge and wisdom, in quotes, that we have gained through studying techniques of propaganda and infiltration and subversion. Little clues for the next game. We are masters of propaganda, infiltration, and subversion, as were the Soviets. They were masters of that too, great masters. Communists are some of the greatest masters in the world of, of dirty tricks, psychological games, etc., etc. They practice them. They refine them. They teach them in, in the military schools and, I believe, in other universities as well. They know these things. We have that in our arsenal, too. The big mistake of the Soviet Union was, was trying to stick to communism as an economic system. That didn't work. But we are Chinese. We are wiser. We learn from, we're so wise that we learn from the mistakes of others. Anybody can learn from his own mistakes, Right. I don't know, a gambler that first loses his money, then his shirt, then his house, and a wife, and sooner or later is going to learn his lesson, right? Any fool can learn from his own mistakes, but you have to be wise to learn from the mistakes of others. You observe the mistakes of others, see, ooh, I'm not going to fall into that trap. I'm going to learn from others' mistakes. Well, that's what China did with the Soviet Union. And they learn from the strengths of others, too. In the case of Hitler, they learn from his strengths and from his weaknesses. Strength, yes, have a totalitarian system, but have a prosperous economic system at the same time. Oh, let's, let's write this down, say the Chinese. Let's learn this. Ah, but weakness. Hitler, gaining so much strength militarily. Oh, very wise, Hitler. Oh, but then he, had, he lacked patience. Let's write this down. You have to have patience. They learn from the good things other people do and from the dumb things other people do so that they don't fall in the same trap, you see? And so they can use the positive things, the smart things Hitler did, the smart things Soviet Union did, but avoiding the pitfalls, avoiding this, the dumb things they did, avoiding their mistakes. You see how the game works if you're a Chinese communist, very intelligent person, well-versed in all the techniques that communism has, has refined and perfected over the years. You see how that works. So now, we're about 1990, and let me ask you, this is, you think this through for the next time, for part two of this how can we defeat the great enemy that is the United States because if that falls, the other countries will fall. So we don't have to launch a war. We can do it in other places too. The same techniques we use against America, we can use other places too. Of course we can. That could be the second branch of our attack. But mainly the goal is to bring down the United States because if we do that, we have the world. Sooner or we're going to have the world. And if we don't do that, we won't have the world. So it could be a two-pronged attack, how to get a lot of little countries, but ultimately it has to be the United States. But they're more powerful than we are technologically, they're more powerful militarily in the sense of nuclear weapons, and so how do we do that? We can't also just march in with a huge army like we did you know, during the Korean War when MacArthur had turned the tide and we were going over the 38th parallel, attacking North Korea, and then suddenly we're faced with hundreds of thousands of Chinese Yeah, they just send in division after division, marching across the, the North Korean border and then attacking us. We can't do that with America because there's an ocean there. The Americans would notice if we suddenly send out no five hundred ships filled with soldiers, I mean they're gonna bomb us out of the water in no time. So we can't do that. So what do we do? How do we defeat the United States? And we must do it someday. Because these democracies are getting uppity, they're, they're dominating the world, and we know if we don't win, they're going to win. And we want to hang on to life, and our system wants to hang on to life. So how do we do it? What kind of long-year plan do we have? My friend, I want you to think about that. Use your imagination. Chinese Communist leaders, about 30 years ago, were only number, I don't know, I think it was like number 11, 12 in the world economically. What are the different things we do to eventually defeat the United States? Think that through from the point of view of 30 years ago. And I think I've told you enough so you can put, even without reading, you can put yourself in that situation. Your system must survive long term or it will fall. And you want to set up a long year plan how to defeat the great enemy United States and the greater enemy of world democracy. The great enemy, if you're a Chinese communist. You think about that. And then when you listen to part two, you can sa- say, "Well, wow, I was right about that, I was right about that, I was wrong about that. Let's see how, how much you can think like a Sherlock Holmes. Not only put pieces together, not only observe things, put the puzzle piece in a place, but using your imagination. What plan or plans would you come up with? And in part two, we'll get into that. What will be the wisest plan? I hope you've enjoyed part one of this little game. And though I called it a game, I hope you've seen that it can be very, very educational. And learning by playing, learning by being original, learning even by playing games, even those techniques belong to the path that we're on, you and I, which is the path of Socrates. I wish you a fine day or night wherever you are, and till the next time, part two. Of this subject. Bye now.